You're listening to the Sound Girls podcast. This episode is part of an ongoing series with the Living History Project, and this episode features an interview with Sherry Klein, interviewed by her friend Lenise Bent. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Soundgirls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. The oral history interviews are typically unedited and will be archived in their original form. This episode features about 30 minutes of the interview. To watch the rest of the episode, you can go to the Soundgirls YouTube page or to soundgirls.org. Well, hi there, everybody. This is uh, Lenise Bent. That's me. Uh, I'm a sound engineer and producer and proud sound girl. And uh, I'm here today, Friday, March 19th, 2021. Another beautiful day here in Los Angeles, California. And uh, I am delighted today to be speaking to the incredible Sherry Klein. Uh, also a pioneer in sound engineering and as a woman. And uh, she and I go back years. Um, we won't even say how many. <laughs> yes, we won't even say how many. How many? <laughs> um, and uh, I'm interviewing Sherry today for the uh, Sound Girls Living History Project. And uh, this will be archived along with a lot of the other uh, projects that have been recorded other the great other great women who have been uh, interviewed um, for this project and uh, I'm very proud to be a part of this so um, so uh, welcome Sherry thank you Lenise it's great to be here and it's wonderful to be part of this project well this is this is a lot of fun for Sherry and I I just have to say because we've been friends since almost the beginning of our careers yeah. so it, it's it's actually quite precious for me to be doing this. So, um, with my dear friend. Uh, so, um, Sherry, could you, um, let's just jump right into this. And okay. um, could you describe a little bit about what you're doing right now before we go down the rabbit hole of your <laughs> my <past>. wonderful adventure <laughs> in audio? <laughs> well, at Present time, I'm a re-recording mixer for film and television, and I work with Smart Post Sound in Burbank, California. And um, as a re-recording mixer, I kind of take all of my past talents and skills and put them to work in this venue. Um, when I was a kid, I remember my grandmother used to tell people, oh, she pushes buttons and plays with dials and watches movies all day in a big building. And I used to go, okay, grandma, that's a bit simplified, but it works. Well, there's, there's some truth there's to it. There's some truth to it. So I just kind of <laughs> let it go. Um, there was no way I could explain to her what I did. And I always think that it's best to describe what we do as um, we take all of the audio tracks that come to us from the teams before us, meaning dialogue editors, music editors, film editors, um, uh, sound effects editors, all the people that are involved in any production. And we put them together and we mix them. And when it's all done, it's when it comes together, it's magic. It's like 
the fine art of a dance, you know, a whole bunch of dancers coming together and, and putting on a performance or an orchestra, orchestral performance. You hear one player and they're magnificent on their own, but when you put it together, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's something that you've never dreamed of. And that's the same thing with putting all the elements of sound together on a mixing stage for film and television is we're creating a sonic vision to go with the visual that you're seeing. And it's uh, a highly technical and creative field. People always go, oh, you're a techie. And I go, oh, that's also highly simplifying it because we have to have a certain amount of technical knowledge and we work exclusively in Pro Tools for the most part these days, but there's a tremendous amount of creativity that goes with it. And I like to think that everything that came before in my career has brought me to this point and has given me those skills to be where I am right now. And I absolutely love what I'm doing. I love going to work and painting sound, you know, playing in a big sandbox and painting pictures with sound. That's fantastic. Now, is, um, now so that is why they call it a, uh, a re-recording mixer because things yes. have been recorded already. Um, but they all come together and they're not, you know, it, they're not perfectly recorded. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, there's a lot of work that has to go into what you finally hear on television and on in, and in films. Well, and that's what mixing comes yes. in and, and then re-recording it. Yeah. Fantastic. So, um, so, uh, wow. Uh, Sherry started out as a, as a musician, and yes. um, just a, a wonderful musician. And the, the fact that uh, your journey has gone from being a musician to a recording engineer, to a post-production professional mixer. Um, take us back to <laughs> the beginning and give us a little idea of what got you on your way and, um, and where you go. Um, you know, in essence, I always tell people I've had three careers because I had career as a musician, I had a career as a recording engineer and then as a re-recording mixer. Um, and to go way, way back when my mother forced me to take piano lessons as a child, as many in my time period, uh, many mothers did for their children. Uh, so she sat me down in front of a piano with a piano teacher and I didn't exactly love it, but I did it but it did introduce me to music. And my mother was a big fan of Broadway shows and we lived right outside of Manhattan in New Jersey, right over the bridge. And so um, we'd have mother-daughter days where she'd take me into New York and we'd go and see a Broadway show. And I fell in love with wow. it. I fell in love with, you know, going to see so many Fiddler on the Roof, Sound of Music. Um, th there were so many, I don't remember them all, but we used to go in and spend the day and go to a Broadway show. And that was, that became my love. I, wow. I so loved those times. And so as I got a little bit older, um, I did start enjoying piano and I started really listening to music and appreciating music. And then I decided, I was away at sleepaway camp once and I heard somebody play a guitar and I went, I wanna play guitar. And so I came home and I said, can I, can I learn to play guitar instead of piano? And my parents said, okay. 
And so they let me start taking guitar lessons. And I was probably around 10 or 11 at that point. Wow. But I started playing folk guitar because folk music was the thing of the day and listening to, you know, all the folk, folk artists that were big in the sixties, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you're, who was your biggest influence right then? I mean, what, what was it that you listened to and you went, oh, I want to play that Joni, song. Or uh, I want to uh, sound Joan like Joan Baez. Joan Baez. Okay. Okay. Buffy St. Marie. Yes. You know, um, those are the people that really like, I was like, oh my God, they're amazing. I want to be just like them. And so mm-hmm. you know, you'd learn all their songs and you'd play all that stuff. And as a guitar player, I fell in love with like John Renborn. I remember his finger picking style. I, I, I was like, Matt, I learned to play so many of his pieces on my own. I just, just by ear, I loved it. But another thing that happened on Sundays in my family is my sister and I, my mother and my father, each would have a Sunday in the month that would be our choice of where we wanted to go. So my father cool always had idea. his thing. My mother, it was, our, it was our days together. And my mother always wanted to go driving in upstate New York, looking at the leaves. And my sister and I would sit in the back going, are we done yet? Are we done yet? <laughs> you know, although she did get me into antiquing at that time at a year early age, because we'd go to the antique stores. But my sister always, for some reason, wanted to eat prime ribs. So she would eat her meat. And I wanted to go to Greenwich Village and hear the folk singers. So we would go to Greenwich Village. And this was before Greenwich Village was, um, I say, I call it concreted over. Um, Mm -hmm. When it was back in the days when there was a lot of grass and there was this beautiful fountain in the middle that was the natural fountain that was there. And there were folk singers everywhere you looked. There were just people relaxing with their families, with their dogs and listening to music. And it was just a lovely afternoon. And then we would go walk around the walk, walk around the West Village. And one day we happened upon a place called the Folklore Center, which was right across the right up the street, right up the stairs from the Waverly Theater um, and Sixth Avenue. And I asked my parents if we could go up and take a look. And they said, why don't you while we get something to eat over here? And I said, "Okay." And I went upstairs and I found out that this was kind of like the home of Sing Out Folk Song magazine, which I had picked up a number of times during that time period. And the proprietor was a guy named Izzy Young who wrote for Sing Out magazine. And there was a guy who lived next door named Jack Baker who was a a guitar teacher. And so I asked my parents if I could come to New York. I was 13 years old, mind you. I asked my parents if I could come to New York (laughs) Take the subway, take the the bus from the bus from New Jersey to the Port Authority, and then the subway down six, the Sixth Avenue subway to the Village, and take these music lessons. And so I did. I started doing that. My mom had wanted me to study music, music, so uh, she enrolled me in some classes at Manus College of Music, and so I took some classes there. But I really didn't care about those. It was the guitar playing that I really wanted to learn, and I spent a number of years taking my guitar lessons. They were tablature style, finger picking style guitar playing. Mm -hmm. I met incredible people because that was during the sixties with the Vietnam war and all the marches and um, protest songs, protest songs. It was all protest songs. Mm -hmm. Um, And they treated me like, you know, the kid, the little kid from Jersey who could play a mean finger picking style. And at the time, the guitar my parents had bought me was a 
six string nylon Gibson guitar. Um, it was a fairly large body and such. And it was not, I mean, it was a wide neck. So it was mm-hmm. not the kind of guitar that you classical guitar. Yeah, it was a classical guitar. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a really good guitar for what I was playing. So a couple of years into it, um, Izzy called me one day and said, hey, listen, um, the guys over at Maddie Umanoff's, which was a guitar store and fix it place down the street. And they used to go down south searching for wonderful guitars, old guitars. Uh, every year. And when they came back, they would, you know, they would bring them all to the folklore center and keep some there. And so they called me up and they said, Hey, we found the perfect guitar for you. Maddie found the perfect guitar for you. And if you can come up here with a hundred dollars cash tomorrow, it's yours. And I, of course, so I went to my father and went, daddy, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll work in the bakery. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll get straight A's. I'll I'll do whatever I have to, but please, you know, can I have a hundred dollars? And so (laughs) I was daddy's girl and he went, yeah, yeah, of course. So he gave me a hundred dollars cash of which I put in an envelope and stuck like in my body, if I remember correctly, as I took the bus to the Port Authority and the subway downtown and walked upstairs and had the envelope. And I said, Izzy, here it is. It was a Saturday. Here it is. And, uh, and he said, over there in that corner, there's a really young lady who's sitting there and singing and picking in your, on your guitar. And I said, yeah. He said, go over to her. He took the money and he said, thank you. And he said, go over (laughs) to her and she'll give you your guitar. And I said, okay. So I kind of wandered over and I was just listening to her and she was just like singing gently, not, not anything loud, but singing very lightly. And uh, so over in that corner and sat there for about three or four minutes. And then she looked at me and she saw me looking at the guitar and she said, oh, you must be the young girl that's coming to get that guitar, this guitar. And I said, yes, I'm very excited. She said, well, it's a beautiful, beautiful guitar. It's a very old guitar, and I hope you have many, many years with it. And, uh, you know, would you like to play it? And I said, yes. I said, what you were doing was so pretty, and I don't know if I could do anything like that. She said, no, you'll, you'll do it. So she handed me the, the guitar and walked away, you know, and said, nice meeting you, shook my hand and walked away. And afterwards... I went up to Izzy and I said, thank you so much. I love my guitar. This was so nice. And he goes, "Um, do you know who that? Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. I'm backtracking because she actually said to me when she shook my hand, she said, hi, I'm Joni. And then she got up and walked away. She she said Joan. Joan. Yes, she did. She said Joan. She said, said, hi, I'm Joan. And then she walked away. And I said, I'm Sherry. And she walked away. And but it was just so weird because it was all very nonchalant stuff. And afterwards, um, when I went up to Izzy and he said, oh, you met Joan. And I said, yes. And I realized years later that that was Joni Mitchell. And I had (laughs) no idea at the time because she was just starting, you know, she was just embarking and she wasn't really Joni Mitchell, but she was playing my guitar and holding my guitar. And I was just enthralled by what she was doing it was just so beautiful she was just so gentle and so sweet and when she shook my hand I remember I just kind of looked at her eyes and she had and that's when I realized years later because her eyes I remembered those eyes 
And I remembered wow. that it was that it was Joni Mitchell that I had met then. And that was probably a couple of years, not too many years, but a couple of years after when, when I think I saw her picture on an album cover or something. Mm-hmm. I went, oh, my God. Ladies of the Mitchell. Canyon. Yeah, that was Joni Mitchell. And and the fact that Izzy said to me, he goes, oh, you met Joan. And I said, yes, she's very sweet. And she handed me my guitar. And that was like an amazing experience. But during that time period, I mean, there was a guy named David Peel on the Lower East Side. And he had this crazy song called and an album called I Love Marijuana. We Like Marijuana. Anyway, he was a <laughs> he was a he was a, a regular around Greenwich Village at that time. And he used to come over to the Folklore Center a lot and, and hang out and play. And it was with him and a few other guys the, from the Folklore Center. And they would kind of protect me, keep an eye on me. But we we marched in one of the anti-Vietnam War uh, marches that went to the United Nations. I heard Martin Luther King talk. Oh, fantastic! Um, I mean, I, I remember those days because there were so there was so much protest going on, and I was still a young kid. I mean, all my friends in Jersey were going upstate drinking alcohol in New York where they could, and I was going to New York getting introduced to this entire culture that, you know, I never would have had any idea of had I not started taking these lessons at the Folklore Center. And the Folklore Center was the center of folklore music. I mean, it was the start. I think if I remember correctly, um, Bob Dylan even started there. Mm -hmm. Um, Phil Oaks used to play at the church around the corner. Dave Van Ronk. um, So many greats. Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Yeah, they all came through there. Buffy St. Marie, you know, Mm -hmm. Joe Baez. I mean, there's actually a, a very cool little film on YouTube um, called Talk and Folklore Center, I think it is. And um, and they even talk about Bob, D- Bob Dylan kind of, you know, doing his mm-hmm. early days there. But that was a formative time for me. That was something that I'll never forget as long as I live. Uh, Izzy, oh, I believe, closed the Folklore Center at a certain point and moved to uh, Scandinavia somewhere and opened up a Folklore Center there. And I recently read that he just passed uh, a couple of years ago, but I believe Jack Baker is still next door teaching. He has a banjo school and I oh keep gosh. sitting down to write him a letter or an email. And I just never quite get through it, but they were formative. They were people who formed my musical ideas and my musical thoughts. And, you know, um, going to clubs like the Cafe Wa and, um, you know, Cafe Agogo and Village Gate and all that when I was a kid, I was underage, but they got mm-hmm. me in, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was around that time that I started playing with bands, you know, local bands. Um, and I would sing. I didn't really play guitar that much, but I sang. I was lead singer for a number of groups. And even on, in a jazz group that I played in, I remember we were, we were supposed to play in this nightclub and all the guys were, you know, of age. And I was underage. I think I was six, I was, must've been about 16 at that time. And I looked like I was 12 to tell you the truth. And um, so they had these things called fake ABC cards, you know, for beverage and whatever, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that showed your age. And we paid for a forgery for one so that when I got into playing, uh, nobody could give me any hell because or or bust me because I had a card as far as the club was concerned. So we did lots of things to get around my age and the mm-hmm. fact that I was, you know, doing that stuff uh, at an well, early age. So 
that gave you your foundation. Now, um, how did you go from there? Where did you go from there? And how did you get to your next okay. phase? Okay. My next fave, phase. Well, you're still on your first phase, your musician okay. phase. I'm, I'm still on my musician phase. And okay. Um, so one summer, my parents decided to go to the Jersey Shore for the summer. And I went with them. And there was a little coffee house called 30th Street Station. And I went over there and auditioned so I could gig there, which I did. I started gigging there, you know, on certain nights. After the two weeks was up, my parents said, well, we have to go home. And I said, no, 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 mom, please let me stay here with, with my friends. I'm just, I'm playing music. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. You know, you brought me up right. I'll be a good kid. I promise. Just let me stay here with these friends of mine. And I brought over two friends that were older. And so they finally said, okay. And they went back home. That was also the summer of Woodstock. And so the next big event in my life, that was life-changing and changing in terms of music and where I wanted to aspire, what I wanted to aspire to was we closed down the coffee house and a bunch of us headed up to Woodstock from the Jersey shore. And uh, how did you hear about it or what did they say? Woodstock oh, it was just was? everywhere. What? There was, there was, there was, po there were posters, every radio station talked about Woodstock. I mean, Woodstock was the event. There was no question about okay. it. Okay. And we were young so hippies. You kind of you know? knew what you were uh, heading out to. Nobody knew what they were. Well, if you to. thought you knew. We were going to a concert. Well we were going to a concert. Big okay? concert. We a big concert. concert that um, a lot a lot of people were going to be playing at. You know, that's all we knew. We didn't have tickets. We figured, oh, we'll get tickets, scalp tickets or something like sure. that when we were yeah. there. Yeah. And as we're going up, we're realizing that we're in a traffic jam. And we actually got stuck right in front of my father's store in Paramus, New Jersey, for like 15 <laughs> minutes with me. And, and it was it must have been like 90 degrees and humidity. And I was on the floor because, God forbid, he saw me or any of the guys who worked for me. I was like 10 feet from them oh in the street. God. And we were at a dead stop because the entire That's Route 17 funny. leading up to the New York Thruway leading up to Woodstock was packed. And we started hearing this on the radio. And so little by little, you know, like must have been four hours later that we started making our way onto the thruway and making our way upstate. And we were exhausted and we were tired. And all of a sudden we hear that, you know, they're open. There are so many hundreds of thousands of people coming that they were going to make it a free concert. And the gates were down and people could just go in. So when we finally arrived there, I think we set out at about six o'clock in the morning. I think we must have gotten there. It was still daylight for an hour or two. So we must have gotten there close to six or seven at night or eight at night. And I remember we all we we just plowed the car off the side of the road and we started walking in where we heard, you know, where people were converging. I lost my friends that I came with after the first 45 minutes and never found them again. But from that point on, I was just there. I was at Woodstock, had no idea the historical importance of that particular Who five days of my life, but, and it was a three-day event, so five days of my life. Um, and I just, I mean, I saw everything, you know, I saw everybody. Um, Who was I mean, your most memorable or what pops in your head that moved you the most, if there is, you know. I mean, I, three, I, was, I was not far from the stage. I was in the mud when I woke up to Grace Slick saying, good morning, people. 
and the Jefferson oh, airplane. Wow. I mean, I remember that moment because I crawled under some, I was, I had some plastic over me. And I just remember kind of crawling out of the plastic and mud in my feet and everything. And I don't know, dreadlocks in my hair, for God's sakes. And I looked up and there was Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane. I remember who, I remember that vividly. Um, I remember um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I remember mm -hmm. that because that stuck in my head because to this day, I still love all the material. Richie Harmonies. Richie Havens. Richie Havens. Oh, that my was gosh. Miraculous. I remember Shauna and I made their debut there. And that was just an incredible performance. How diverse. Um, I mean, every I, single person that you're meant, every act you're mentioning has, was so uniquely their own. And, you know, of course, you know, the pond, you know, where we kind of wash up and stuff and go get water in places. And, you know, um, and there were no jumbo jumbo screens, you know, then. Really. Sure. So it was just you were you just had to fight your way up. And since I was alone, I just fought my way up as close as I could to the front. And people weren't standing. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't standing and watching really until, you know, they got excited and then they'd get up and start standing and dancing. But they were just there. Right. You know, they were camped right. out and, you know, little tents and things. And, you know, you'd forge for food, meeting people and just like in the movie. It just I guess <laughs> just like in the movie. But, I mean, I've seen a couple of movies and it thrills me to no end because I just keep going. Where was that? Where was that? <laughs> was yes. in, in that crowd yes. somewhere? So anyway, I came back from Woodstock. Um, like I said, I was there for five days because I stayed to clean up. And Such it was a good a girl. Good for event. you. Good for you. And um came home. And then that's a whole nother story because of my parents found out and the drugs and all that stuff entered into it. And they kind of grounded me for a while, but eventually <laughs> uh, I did continue with my music studies. And no. when, you know, I was in high school um, and I started applying to colleges. The first okay. uh, I, I, had actually wanted to go very much to because of the open educational um, curriculums of them was Goddard and Antioch. And I did get accepted to both. I got accepted to both of them. Um, I really wanted to go to Goddard. Um, and then I went up for a visit and uh, they were walking around snowshoes, you know, like skiing to class. And I'm like, no, that's not me. And then mm -hmm. I went over to Antioch and because of the timing, this was, you know, 1969, 70, um, people were very, very militant and they were walking around with, I was seeing people walking around with guns and that freaked me out. And I went, no, no, no. Then there was this other school. I, there were a number of schools I got accepted to, but there was this other school that I kind of went through the guidance office one day and I just kind of went through and I picked out, I picked out a, a school and it was called Webster College. And Fantastic it was school now, but I mean, yeah. uh, it was Webster College in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was this red booklet. And I went, oh, and I started reading through it. And it was very interesting because they had an open educational curriculum also where you could pick and choose from various, you know, uh, various. I don't know what you call it, well, just a, curriculums a or something like subjects. Yeah. To, yeah. to study. Yeah. And. The only thing that kind of didn't thrill me was at the time they had a great music department, but the mm -hmm. music department was still run by the nuns because previously it had been an all girls Catholic school. And I believe the head of the school, the chief nun ran off to marry a Jewish doctor from Clifton, New Jersey. Or something. <laughs> and the school, anyway, the school converted to a co-educational school and they were importing 
men from everywhere. They wanted to get an equal amount of men and women. <laughs> so they were just like, yeah, they were importing them. So we had co-educational dormitories. We had open curriculum. And the music department was still very strict and run by the nuns. So you would get up in the morning to, you know, like 9 a.m. Gregorian chant, strict classical background. Okay. Strict Ooh. classical Gregorian chant, all, all orchestral, uh, nothing in the new world. And I was getting a little frustrated, but one of the people in my, who was actually dating my roommate there uh, was, a, was this old friend, Sal. And he said, Hey, I'm getting out of here after the next semester because I can't deal with this Gregorian chant at 9 a.m. Um, I want to study jazz and I want to study modern composition and stuff. And I said, yeah, well, where do we do that? And he said, hey, there's this cool place called Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's what they do. They just do. You can major in arranging and composition. And I'm like, whoa, I'm done. That's it. So I applied to Berkeley mm -hmm. and both Sal got in and we ended up being roommates there. And I got in and in and I quit this. I quit after the first semester. Now, I had also studied music at Manus and taken a lot of classes on my own beforehand. So I was very familiar with classical counterpoint and fusion and, and classical um, theory and theory and everything. So mm -hmm. this wasn't anything new, but it's just I wanted more. So when we got accepted, I said, OK, I'm done. And so I spent the interim period of time hitchhiking cross country and getting into trouble all over the country, all over the place. And gigging also, <laughs> I had a guitar. Every time I found a guitar, I just play in the local coffee shop or coffee house, wherever, wherever I could. At the end of that time, um, I knew I was going to Berkeley. So I took some classes at new school in Manhattan and I went back to the folklore center for a little while and just kind of like, you know, kept up things until mm -hmm. I got to Berkeley. And then moved to Boston. At the time, Berkeley was Berkeley School of Music. It was one building, the main one on Boylston Street, and it had mm -hmm. a small kind of Tudor building on, on Newberry Street. Okay, it was just a very small, like townhouse kind of building, and that we had additional classes there. Um, there were fifty girls to eight hundred guys. Um, mm -hmm. There were very few women, very very few, and. The first semester classes usually had like a gazillion people in them because as mm -hmm. you went on in semesters, people would start dropping out like flies. I mean, the first semester was tough for me. The interesting was because I tried to take advanced placement to move myself forward, but I didn't get through it. And the reason is I didn't understand that I knew everything that they were talking about theoretically in the first season, in the first uh, mm -hmm. you know semester, but it was by a different name. In other words, to, uh, you know, one, two, five, you know, one, three, five, seven, you know, instead of like a six, five or a six, four or whatever in classical terminology. In other words, I knew the inversions that they were right. talking, so about. talking about. I just about didn't, I didn't know the language. Chord structure. And yeah, chord, chord structure. It was language that I just didn't yeah. know. And so I kind of breezed through first semester fairly easily because it was all stuff that I knew just changing, changing the language. So that was kind of fun. Um, going into second semester was really great. I loved that. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I moved through it. I moved through, you know, Berkeley fairly well. I loved being in Berkeley. Um, who were some were of the monk. people, who were some of the people that, uh, were your colleagues then? Uh, because so many great 
jazz musicians and session musicians have come out of Berkeley, especially during that time. You can know, you remember any names? I can remember one in Berkeley? particular, Abe Laboreal. We Abe Laboreal. Yeah, we but, were in the same melody and improv cheat circle. We Because that was one class that was sort of okay. jazz history. It was kind of like, you know, that wasn't the classes you really wanted to focus your energy on. So you wanted to kind of get through those assignments fast. So we'd have, you know, like coffee circles where we just kind of trade information mm -hmm. and, and get done with that assignment so that we can move on to the compositional assignments, you know, right, and things right. like that. But there were a lot of people when I moved to LA, I mean, half the studio players I knew from sure. Boston. Well, and th um, to this day, there's a significant number of Berkeley grads. Right. You know. I mean, I never graduated. I left, um, I finally got into for, I forgot which semester it was, but I applied for a line writing, which was a class by a guy named Herb Pomeroy. And also I, I studied piano there, not guitar, mm -hmm. because for, I became a composition and arranging major. And I, mm -hmm. I felt that the piano would, be, would serve me better. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think at, at a certain point, my biggest problem at Berkeley was I was a sponge when it came to the theory and all the technique and all that stuff. Looking back at the way my life has has gone, I completely understand why. Um, but at the time, it was almost too much absorption. I mean, I had great, I had, I still to this day I have relative pitch. Um, I could sit in the subway and analyze a Charlie Parker solo off mm -hmm. of a Walkman or something like mm -hmm. that if I had tonic and I could write it out. The problem was I stopped being able to innovate. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, understand that but i stopped being able to innovate everything fully totally understand was a sub five of a two five of a you know i could i could i could see it all in my head and i started kind of getting a little bit freaked out a little bit because i i i no longer felt like i had the talent to create i'd go into piano practice rooms and i would spend hours and i just didn't feel like i was getting anywhere and i'd listen to what some of the other people were creating around me and i'm like that's talent that's creative energy at, at its best Thank you so much for listening to the Sound Girls podcast and the Sound Girls Living History Project. More episodes of the Sound Girls Living History Project will be featured right here on the podcast in coming weeks. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.